And I mean, a lot of people are cynical about frameworks, but I guess I'm a geek. I happen to really like frameworks. I think that they guide our thinking. I think that they norm our practices. They give us the vocabulary, the actual words to talk about when we're talking about teaching and learning. And, you know, they inform high leverage teaching practices in the classroom. This is Teaching Today, brought to you by the Center for the Professional Education of Teachers at Teachers College, Columbia University. In conversation with teachers, researchers, and school leaders, we are dedicated to breaking down the problems, policies, and promising practices that define teaching today. Uniting theory and practice, CPET promotes rigorous and relevant scholarship and is committed to making excellent education accessible worldwide through personalized professional development. Okay, so this is our second podcast, or maybe our third podcast, where we haven't had, um, I haven't had my co-host Sharice with me, so uh, bear with me a little bit as we get started today. We've been talking for the last few episodes about our focus on culturally relevant, responsive, and sustaining pedagogy, which is one of CPET's core values, one of our core principles, and we're really excited to be digging into a conversation today about a framework and a guidebook that we have been co-authoring with some partners here in New York City. And so I don't wanna spend any more time dilly-dallying around. I just wanna jump right into it. So let's get to it. I'm Roberta Langer-Kang, Director of the Center for the Professional Education of Teachers and co-host of Teaching Today. And my special guest today is Letitia Pinheiro. Letitia is the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Queens North Borough Citywide Office. Letitia, welcome to Teaching Today. Thank you, Roberta. I'm so thrilled to have you here because not only are you kind of like a seasoned uh, veteran professional developer, but you have had so many different roles in your career leading up to this point, and you really have been able to see teaching today. Uh, I always have to throw that one in there, <laughs> but you're really able to see teaching from multiple perspectives as a teacher, as a school leader, as a founding principal, as uh, from a superintendent's perspective, sort of a district-wide supervisory perspective, and also from a professional development perspective. And so I just am really excited to be able to learn from you and hear your different perspectives on the importance uh, and the value of CRSE, especially as it relates to professional development. Thank you. Great introduction. Well, can we start? I just want to kind of dig in a little bit more then. Would you tell us a little bit about how you stumbled into or maybe calculated your way into teaching and education as a profession and some of the different roles that you've played? Sure. I actually did stumble into it. After college, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I didn't get the assignment that I wanted. I ended up uh, being sent to the Federated States of Micronesia where I was told I would be teaching Micronesian children on this very small atoll island called Pompeii. And essentially it was like war bounty after World War II, but they have a compact of free association with the United States. So the instruction was in English. So I got this like um, this training over two weeks and then, you know, this certificate that I was a teacher. (laughs) And I was thrown into a classroom and it was trial by fire. So my first teaching experience was actually two and a half years abroad in the Peace Corps. Then I came back to New York City and I got 
with Columbia University Teachers College. I took courses and I became a return Peace Corps volunteer fellow out of TC's program. It was a great program. I got licensed, certified to be an ESL teacher. And then I, again, was sent to Kennedy High School, which coincidentally was in the neighborhood in which I lived in the Bronx. So that was, you know, my first teaching gig was at Kennedy High School in the Bronx for 10 years. And then um, I became an assistant principal for just a year and then was recruited to do a startup under the Bloomberg administration. I became a principal in the Bronx and was there as a principal for a while and then went to the central office where I was a director in the office of lead where I really feel like I started to really develop in a deeper way as a pedagogue because um, they basically just said, you know, we want you to start this teacher leadership program. And at the time, the deputy chancellor, Anthony Canelli, actually came and visited my school, which I thought was super smart of him because he wanted to see the culture of my school and see if I was the type of individual that could really start up a program in which, you know, teachers are empowered to lead inquiry work and, and to do um, cycles of inquiry that would result in, you know, improved teaching and learning. And so that was really an exciting project for me. And I got the opportunity to work with teacher leaders and principals across New York City and work with teachers and principals and assistant principals and coaches who were on my team. And we trained people to lead teacher teams. Then I went back into the principalship for a very short time before I became a deputy superintendent out in Queens. And again, I learned a lot um, in that role, too because you, you're in a bubble when you're in your own school. Once you leave your own school, and at one point, you know, I had close to 43 schools combined with the Bronx and Queens, you just see a lot of different practices, a lot of different school cultures. And, you know, you're in the position where you're evaluating, but you also have to coach. After that, I got tired of being an evaluator. And once again, I wanted to go back into more of a support role and a creative role where I could, you know, take the initiative to work on projects and manage projects that were important to me. This year, convinced my boss to give me some money so I can partner with someone so I can work on, you know, a project, a pet project, which is the culturally responsive and sustaining education guidebook that your team and my team collaborated on. So that's my short history. I love just the, I feel like it, it's just like such a great weave, right? It's like, okay, I, I actually didn't know about your Peace Corps experience. So that was just like, I wish we could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> but I, I just love the idea of like, I'm teaching, I'm leading, I'm teaching, I'm leading, I'm supervising, I'm leading, I'm learning, and, and kind of going in and out of these like supervision and support, supervision and support, and also that just the different lenses that you've been able to take on from like, sounds like, you know, very small school to a large school to your own, you know, to then to your own school as a, as a school leader, and then more broadly across like a working with teacher leaders and then working, you know, in the supervisory role from a district's perspective and now from a professional development, like each one of those gives a really unique angle and insight into what education is and what students need and what teachers need. And I'm curious about how now that you're in this role around professional development for multiple districts in Queens, what did you see 
in the classrooms and the schools you were visiting in the environment across many, many schools. We're talking about, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, 100,000, 100, a couple hundred thousand kids um, being served by these schools. What did you see that said to you, what we need is culturally responsive and sustaining education. And it's not enough to just say, do this, think about this guys, here's an article, go do it. But you felt like there's something more that needs to be done so that this can be implemented. Well, there's a couple of things. As far as instruction, and when you're talking to teachers and you're talking to school leaders, when you're debriefing what you see, I saw a lot of program fatigue. I saw a lot of fatigue around initiatives and I saw a lot of disconnect. You know, we'd have conversations around Danielson or the quality review rubric. And now, you know, the CRC framework. And just this year, they rolled out the DESA survey, which is based on the CASEL uh, social and emotional learning framework, which I started studying and learning about and my team started using last year. It was new to us too. And, you know, I heard a lot of discontent and people were just, are just, were just overwhelmed with how do these things fit in together? And let me not forget about, you know, we're also slowly moving from common core standards to the next generation learning standards. They're here, but our, the state assessments aren't fully aligned to NGLS yet. So I also want to throw that in the mix. And it, it became overwhelming to people. And, you know, one morning I woke up and I'm just like, these things are all interconnected. Like I started just really rereading Danielson and even parts of the next generation uh, learning standards. And of course the CRSC framework. And I started to realize that a lot of the practices are similar across these frameworks. Roberta, you put it really lovely when you said that, you know, we were going to really focus on these power practices across the frameworks, you know, as a professional developer, I can take the time to do the research and read things, but school leaders and teachers on a day-to-day -day basis, they're focused on planning and preparation and instruction and their professional responsibilities. They don't have time to really do the reading and do the research and really take these deep dives that professional developers can do. So I thought, let's create something that would assist people in seeing the connections between uh, these frameworks so they don't feel so overwhelmed. And so, you know, we can actually use this tool to help them, you know, reflect, critically reflect on their teaching practices and have a tool to be able to talk about these power practices across the frameworks. So that was one of the things that I saw. And as far as instruction, even though we're in 2022, there's still a lot of teacher-led instruction I still see a lack of opportunities for students to talk to each other in an authentic way to construct meaning and just a lot of boredom in classrooms and not tapping into children's experiences or prior knowledge. So those were things that I found, you know, we still, we've come a long way, but we still have to work on those practices that really You're engage really students articulating in the pressure that educators feel with like the new thing the new thing the new thing the new thing right and you know there's that sort of saying yes. like oh if you, you know you see a new initiative you don't like it just wait a little bit because it'll come away soon but but we do see exactly. that some things stick around and that they are persistent and what you hope is that those things that are persistent over time are actually those real seminal touch um 
those real seminal footholds and handholds that I can say like these things really ground us in research-based practices that are proven over time to be effective and highly effective. And I think that that even with those few things, right, looking at the CRSE framework from New York State, looking at the um, Danielson framework for teaching, which has been adopted by New York State now 10 years, that's been the expectations for, for what effective teaching looks like. That's been the framework that's been driving that work. And then this real focus on being able to articulate the social and emotional skills and Castle does that so well, be able to say like, these are the, I love the soft skills that are really hard to master or that are really hard to teach and really hard to learn. Um, But that, you know, you get one thing and then you get another thing and you get another thing. And then often, you know, educators in the classroom and in school start to feel like it's just one thing after another. And I I have to do 50 things or a hundred things, or I'm not going to get a good rate. And now my focus has shifted on all sorts of other things and not on the dynamics of teaching and learning. But what came out, I think, really clearly in our partnership uh, over the course of this year has been that the culturally relevant and sustaining education is a through line. And you said it really well, right? It's, it's interconnected. And, you know, if we think about each of these frameworks as sort of like piling on a mountain of pressure, it's the CRSE framework that really creates that tunnel burrows all the way through and says, here's a through line. Here's the, not a shortcut, but like, here's the most direct path focus on teaching students and focus on when we're teaching students, recognizing that that we can't separate an individual from their identity and you can't separate an identity from a culture. Just to think about my own evolution as a educator, I was a principal under the Bloomberg administration. I started my school in 2004 and that was a time of a lot of transition. You know, they spoke about principal empowerment, but the Common Core was rolled out during my principalship. The Danielson Framework for Teaching was rolled out during my principalship. The Quality Review Rubric was rolled out during my principalship. So I understand when people feel overwhelmed, and I remember trying to make sense of these things as a school leader and then help my teachers to make sense of Common Core, Danielson, and the Quality Review Rubric. And I remember how, you know, frightening it was to get my first quality review as you know as a as a school leader and how you know I really wanted to do well because I knew it was important to my teachers right you want to people are working hard and you want to confirm that what you're doing is um, meaningful to students so that also motivated me just thinking about my own trajectory as an educator my own journey and what I experienced in a short amount of time yeah. those three and frameworks I also think were rolled like out. that when we're thinking about this through line of CRSE, that it's not just enough to say, oh, just just do that thing that you already know how to do. Because if this was easy and we know how to do it, we would be doing it already. And I think that that, um, that notion that we need something more, we need some more tools, we need some more resources, and we need some more definition to be able to understand really what does culturally relevant and sustaining education, we knew what it meant at least I'll say, I think I, I knew what it meant. I had read, you know, I read the books or the articles and you know, reflected on myself, but how do you, but what does it look like, right? What does it really mean to do it? What are, what do I do? And to, to really think about bringing the, these abstract concepts into a classroom space and, and having a conversation with a teacher who maybe might say, well, what do I do? And kind of feeling like, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> 
I like the fact that you use the word abstract because oftentimes these things are abstract to teachers and school leaders, but that's why I love frameworks because they kind of concretize what's abstract. They bring the research to life basically. And I mean, a lot of people are cynical about frameworks, but I guess I'm a geek. I happen to really like frameworks. I think that they guide our thinking. I think that they norm our practices. They give us the vocabulary, the actual words to talk about when we're talking about teaching and learning. And, you know, they inform high leverage teaching practices in the classroom. And I also like that you can use frameworks in, in various ways. And it doesn't have to be for evaluation, right? What we did together is a non-evaluative framework and you can use it in a lot of different directions. We do have schools and teachers that are currently using it as a self-assessment piece. They're using it for peer intervisitations, instructional rounds. My team is using it for coaching and professional learning. So it's just a really great non-evaluative tool that really deepens our conversations. I think without the tool, any tool, a conversation isn't, you know, it doesn't go as deep, especially when we're talking about, you know, curriculum and pedagogy and the classroom environment. I think teachers need our look-fors, I think, you know, those power practices that are, are look-fors. They also need illustrations. You know, I, I learned this when I left the principalship and I wish I could have done it differently. I did a lot of my own professional development as a principal. And now I realize that, you know, you have to be illustrative. Teachers, just like kids, they need explicit instruction. They need the modeling. They need the illustrations. And um, that's why I'm so jazzed up about our guidebook, because it, it actually does yeah, that. It's yeah. illustrative. Well, in terms of the geeky the geekiness, I just want to say you're in really good company, because I, <laughs> I am also <laughs> just like a huge uh, framework nerd. And, you know, a lot of people, you look at frameworks, you look at rubrics, and some people might have the perspective that says, oh, well, this is, um, it's, this is an objective way to have this conversation. And I sometimes push back around, like, is objectivity possible? But what it is, is it makes, it makes ideas explicit. And, you know, you were talking about developing shared knowledge, shared language, uh, a coherent definition so that we can begin to be illustrative. So we can begin to say, it looks like this, it looks like this, we can design something around it, we can make it, con we can take what's abstract and make it more concrete. And frameworks allow us to do that because we can come to some agreements on what it is we're talking about. Because you might say one thing and I might say another thing. Um, I'll say one of the early memories that I have of working on the project was having, um, I wouldn't call it an argument, but it was like where we were just like we were trying to come up with. So there are these framing principles that the state has identified um, as part of their their framework for culturally relevant and responsive education, welcoming and affirming environment high expectations and rigorous instruction, inclusive curriculum and assessment design. And as part of our conversation, we began to break those out, not into the three, but into the five, making sure that each one of those things sort of like, we could look at it and, and hold it separately and kind of in our minds and kind of really focus in on it. And, and so what we began to develop is what we now call attributes. Um, <laughs> but I think it was maybe a 90 minute conversation over the course of a few weeks on, are they claims? Are they characteristics? Are they attributes? Are they traits? Like what are these things? 
and what it, how is it that we're defining them? And are they in a sequential order? Are they valued? Are some more important than others? But those conversations, though some might look at us and go, it's just semantics, it's the same thing. But we really needed to dig into that because what we understand is that when you put it in the framework, when you write it down and say, this is what it is, then we have to have some agreements about what that means so that when we go to implement, we're implementing the same thing. Right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think semantics are are really important, and I think word choice is very important. Maybe, you know, Roberta, you and I are both English teachers. Maybe that's why we're a bit, you know, picky or persnickety about that, and I remember that lively debate. Um, even, you know, the word, the word references <laughs> the team debated, like some people just wanted to call it yeah. connections, other people references. So, um, but they do have meaning because they have implications for the work that we do. Some things sound like synonyms, but they're, they're not quite synonyms when you really start diving down into, you know, a continuum of what any word means. I guess what I'm trying to say is those conversations were really meaningful. I could not have done this alone. When you're engaging in an endeavor like this, you really have to find like-minded people to do this work with and who value frameworks and who value being explicit. It was much more time consuming. And there were times when I was on meetings and I was you know, looking at my watch and I'm like, I have other things to do. Why are we discussing this for a long time? But it, it was, we also had to deal with a lot of ambiguity. I mean, I thought we did not know the direction that the guidebook was going in. You know, when I came to you, I thought of it simply as a crosswalk. That's what I was just thinking of, you know, we're just going to put together a chart and it's going to show the connections between Castle Danielson and GLS and uh, CRSC. And it morphed into something much larger than I could ever have imagined. And what I learned about, you know, creating frameworks and also working with a group of people, I've always known it's an iterative process, but we kind of tested it out along the way, like, you know, my team was using it and I was getting a lot of feedback on it. A lot of it was not good feedback. And that really informed the thinking. I had not intended originally to do look fors, and people were like, hey, you know, what's a crosswalk without these look fors? Schools need explicit look fors if we're going to use this for coaching and instructional rounds and professional development. And you pushed our thinking around the portraits of practice. And I was just like, Roberta is crazy. It is going to take us forever to write these portraits of practice and why do we need them? But now, you know, I've gotten feedback. People love the portraits of practice because they really, and they're really illustrative and teachers have been reading them and school leaders can read them and you can really pull out the power practices. And, um, you know, it's not a perfect picture. It's a, a pretty picture of what could be or what we aspire to. The portraits aren't perfect, but it is an example of, you know, the principle or the attribute. I just, you know, I'm grateful that we had that experience. I mean, it did take us a, almost an entire school year to put together. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm grateful to both of our teams because it, we didn't, I, we did not know where this was going. And um, I, I am thinking about, you know, all the people that have created wonderful frameworks. When I was a principal, I was using the Santa Cruz yeah. framework for a while. Yeah. I used Kim Marshall's <laughs> framework. I rem and all of those frameworks really inspired me. And I can only imagine how, now I understand the thinking, how long it probably took them to create the framework. 
and what goes into creating a framework. So well, I want to talk a little bit about what it has in it so that we can get into a little bit more about like what we think the future of the guidebook is and the future of this work. But I have to stop and like, I'm crying a little bit because it has been such a passion project and something that, that I, I just have to agree with you that the you know, framework, 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 but it, it is an articulation of what you believe to be right and good and true, right? And when you feel like you're onto something and have figured out, like, I think that this is how it could work to see that vision come to life. And then to hear it's starting to work. It's starting to open up people's ideas. It's starting to create space for creativity. It's starting to create opportunities and pathways for people to change their practice in ways that meet students' needs. That's, that's sort of like, the dream, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, we have started distributing it and I've gotten some people have emailed me, principals, teachers have emailed me, some colleagues have emailed me. I think um, one of the greatest challenges now is getting people to use it consistently. And, you know, we're in a really large system. I think what's most important is that on an individual school level, the principals that are interested in this work, and there's plenty of them in New York City, they are using it for instructional rounds mostly and around coaching teachers. And they have found it really helpful because it is so specific. The specificity is really adds to the functionality of you know the framework. So just to provide a, a brief overview, the framework itself is called yeah. CRSE Aligned Practices. And we have the starter, I'll say like the starter kit, for example, are these at-a-glance documents that take these five principles, right, and break them down into different attributes. And the attributes similar to a characteristic or a trait are the examples of the representative actions that are in place, that are taking place when that principle is being embodied, Right. So if we take the first one, which is like a very easy entry point, welcoming and affirming environment, there are three attributes of classes or education spaces that have a welcoming and affirming environment. And how we have outlined the language here is that welcoming and affirming environments affirm diverse identities, promotes respect and develops positive rapport. And those are examples of our attributes. Well, it's, you know, I have one version of what promotes respect means. Somebody else might have a different one. Somebody else might have a different one. So also on the at a glance document, we have an explanation. Well, what does it mean to promote respect? And so we're going to outline and articulate very specifically promoting respect looks like this. And then because, you know, where you're, where the, the origin story of the, of this, document is about the connections between CRSE, the Danielson framework, it's CASEL learning, NGLS standards, is about seeing how CRSE really cuts through all of those frameworks. Then this at-a-glance document also includes this crosswalk of references that says, oh, promotes respect is in these 15 places in CASEL and these 12 places in the Danielson framework and these places in the state's framework. And so what we're doing is we're really drawing those very specific direct lines between all of the already required elements that teachers and school leaders are supposed to be using and saying how these attributes are connected to all of those mandatory things already. Following that, we also then have these look-fors, which are descriptors of what you would see 
if and what you can literally look for in classroom visits or school-wide visits, instructional rounds, etc. And then from there, these so we have that as an at a glance. That all information, the 18 attributes across the five principles. And the look for is, is a, in like a four page spread, a digital four page spread or a hard copy two pages, right? Because we really want it to be something that somebody, that anyone in education could pick up, look at and go, oh, okay, I get it, right? I don't have to spend a million hours on this. I don't have to, you know, take it to bed with me. I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, read it for days on end. I can pick it up and I can go, oh, okay, I get it. But getting it and doing it are two different things. And that's where the guidebook really comes in. And the guidebook then is going in for every single attribute and, and more fully articulating that crosswalk of skills, um, outlining an illustration of practice in these portrait of practice narratives, and then also providing attribute specific look fors that are intended to give teachers, school leaders, and district leaders concrete examples of what it is they can do in order to bring this practice and these principles to life in their classrooms. Yeah, you nailed it in a nutshell. It sounds overwhelming, and but it's not because you can use the whole framework or dive into parts of the framework. Recently, a principal asked me, how do I use this thing? She referred to it as this thing. And I said, start off with the at-a-glance documents. And she said, yeah, they're really useful, but how do I use it? And I said, why don't you start using it with a self-assessment? You're the school leader. You're in, and this is a school leader that is in classrooms all of the time. She just loves instruction. And I said, look at the, the teacher practices and student practices. What do you see in your school? What don't you see in your school? What is high leverage that you don't see? What are some areas of growth that you want to focus on? So she did that. She came back to me and then I said, well, now go into those, those specific areas in the guidebook, read the crosswalk, look at more look fors that are aligned to that specific attribute, and then read the, you know, the uh, portrait of practice. And then she came back to me with, oh, okay. So she started broad and then, you know, she got very, very narrow and basically narrowed it down to three attributes, but not all the look fors from the attributes, because that's also a wonderful thing. You may see some of the look fors aligned to attributes in your classrooms if you're a school leader, but you may not see others that you still believe are valuable for children and their learning and their social and emotional development as well. Then she developed some professional development around it. And so she's scaffolding this process, then she's going to use it for coaching, and then she, teachers will use it for intervisitations, and she's got a lot of teacher leadership, a lot of distributive leadership in her school, they do instructional rounds, and then they'll start using it gradually for instructional rounds, so she's developed, you know, this debriefing protocol around it, so you know, again, when you're using a framework too, you have to scaffold it for the adult learner. And I think she's done a really good job of doing that. And she's doing it gradually um, toward the end of this year, because, you know, we rolled out the document, you know, two thirds into the school year, but she'll really then be able to, you know, hit the ground running in September because she's doing preliminary work now. I'm coaching a new teacher and he's yesterday, he was like, oh, you know, I just, I, so I just said to him and we were just chit chatting and I said, so you know, what was the last PD you had? And he's like, oh, my principal did PD on this thing called the Danielson Framework for Teaching. And he had these informal observations before anyone even showed him the framework. 
And so now he's like, oh, so I got a developing in this area and this area and this area. Now they're showing me the framework. And he's like, I've got to understand this better and what these what these, you know, descriptors mean because I'm being evaluated on this. We had this long conversation. I said, Well, I'm gonna send you an, another document that's gonna and he's like, another framework. <laughs> he's like, Letitia, don't do that. But again, I said, Look, this is just for you. This is just for you. This is non-evaluative. I'm like, just start. And I told him the same thing. I said, just look at, you got all this feedback in writing from your AP. Start self-assessing yourself. You know what? We had a conversation. I pointed him in the the direction of the areas of the guidebook that he should look at. And I made it very narrow. And then I said, just critically reflect on what you're embedding in your lesson plans and then what you're actually implementing during your instruction. Because we know there's always a gap between planning and implementing, planning and the teaching, planning and preparation and the instruction. So um, I'm hoping to get back to him and then we'll you know, do some co-construction for his next lesson plan because he's really nervous. He's going to be evaluated. Really, a dual, he's going to get a full formal soon and this AP will be in his room for 45 minutes and he's a nervous wreck. And I'm just, I'm, I know that if he understands these connections between CRSC and, and Danielson and the cell components too, that he'll be okay. I, I, I think that they, they're really, they're not mutually exclusive, they're complementary. And if you look at them as a whole, it will improve, you know, teaching and learning for students. One of the things that you've said a few different times is that the framework that we've been developing is non-evaluative. And yes, and I want to ask you, why not? You have a lot of experience in supervision. I think you're a person like me, you know, who believes like it shouldn't all be supervision, but yeah, people need to be held accountable for their work. Teachers are teaching other people's children and they should be held accountable to that, right? And so supervision is not negative. You know, negative experiences with your supervisor, but supervision in in and of itself, accountability in and of itself is not negative. So why not make an evaluative framework that can be used to rate the quality uh, and quantity of CRSE in classrooms? Why focus on a non-evaluative framework and what what does that do? I think that non-evaluative frameworks really are the frameworks that push our thinking and improve our practice. You usually get more buy-in when something is not evaluative. You know, one of my favorite Charlotte Danielson books is Talk About Teaching. I love that book and I've read it like over and over again. And we know that her framework was originally created to talk about teaching, not for evaluation. And all the research tells us that it's those coaching experiences that really help teachers to grow. It's not when you're in the classroom evaluating them and it's when their peers come in, it's those conversations that you have during your inquiry cycles. It's you know the conversations you have when you're looking at student work or you're in instructional rounds or you know, you're focused on one thing um, in a classroom visit and then you go deep with that. That is what moves uh, teacher practice. I think teachers, I mean, any human beings, you, you begin to shut down once a tool is used for evaluation. You just see the tool differently. You don't access it the same way. And this tool, we want people to access it on their own, meaning we want them to use it to critically reflect on their teaching practices in a deeper way that helps them to make connections. 
and the whole spirit of culturally responsive and sustaining education to me has nothing to do with evaluation. It has everything to do with moving our practice so that diverse learners, all students get what they need um, in the classroom on a daily basis. And that's not something that you can evaluate very easily. Affirming a student's identity is, you can't evaluate that very easily. I don't think you can do that objectively, nor do I think you should, you know, empowering students. These are really important skills. And I think that they shouldn't be evaluated, but we should hold people accountable to do it. But you can still do that without evaluating people. And then I think, you know, you get more buy-in and teachers begin to understand the importance and the power in affirming students' identities and in empowering students and in having, I'm thinking about assessment design, having students set goals for themselves and engage in metacognition. These are like, you know, really high-level teaching practices that um, you I was just thinking about that, over thinking years. about like, this document is not something that you would like, oh, let's do a couple months of PD about it, or, oh, let's do, we'll, we'll do our, we'll do our faculty meeting on it and then move on. Right. But, you know, you could study it, you could begin a rollout of it that could take four or five years and feel like, okay, we're starting to get the hang of it now. And, and, exactly. that, and that's not to say it, it's a needs to be an overwhelming process, but what I hope is that it's a treasure trove, like every time someone opens it, they're able to find a nugget of something that, that, that is implementable, that is within reach. And so it's not that I need to implement everything. It's that there is what I hope feels like every time I go into it, I can find something new to try. And that's about deepening the fabric of my teaching. That's right. And, you know, there's a big difference between a framework and a rubric. And one of the things you had said to me when I showed you, like, one of our earliest iterations, and it was the same criticism that I got from people on my team, was it looks like a rubric, right? And once something starts looking like a rubric, you're not going to get, it it will be difficult for teachers and school leaders to embrace you know, we really need to, and that speaks to formatting too, right? We have many debates <laughs> over formatting and what, and what the look of it be should be. And um, if the devil's in the details. if it's 12 or 11 point font. <laughs> exactly. What should be bolded? Nobody we likes hate italics. Remember those conversations? <laughs> we're like, Roberta, what are you talking about? We hate italics my in mistake, this crew. My mistake. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, again, it's about establishing an entry point for the adult learner. And, you know, I think we did a, a fine job of doing it. And it, and I think it's, you know, a document that you roll out over yeah. years and years. And it will morph into something different as, you know, yeah. the research continues yeah. to progress around what diverse learners need. Well, I love need. that you just left it there because as we as we round out our conversation, that's kind of what I want to ask you about. The framework is available on the CPET website, and so you should uh, go ahead and be sure to check us out at tc.edu forward slash CPET, and you can download a copy of the full framework, 75 pages, as well as the at-a-glance documents, and learn a little bit more about uh, the project that we have done together. And But this is available for free. It's available for free everywhere. And the reason that it's not behind a paywall or anything like that, A, is because it's been a collaborative effort, but also because, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if everybody could get a copy of it and begin to just use it even in small ways? And so, Letitia, I'm just wondering if you could offer one piece of advice, like where would somebody start by you know, just increasing 
you know, their ability to teach their diverse learners? What's one small thing that a teacher can do to begin implementing CRSE in their classroom? Wow, because several things come to my mind. But for me, it's seeing the whole identity of a child is a place to begin and seeing a child's identity as an asset and assuming that all individuals want to learn. Therefore, you should have high expectations of them and understand that, you know, attached to everyone's identity is, you know, a set of, it's, is knowledge, right? All children, all adults, all beings have prior knowledge. And I think one of the first things teachers should do to connect with their children, to build rapport, but also to build children's confidence in their own knowledge and their own ability to learn is to show children that, you know, their identity is an asset and their prior knowledge is something that can be built upon in the classroom and tapped into. And I've seen the best teachers tap into children's prior knowledge. And that is something that is very empowering for children. This is Teaching Today. I'm Roberta Linker Kang, and I just want to say such a heartfelt thank you to you, Letitia. Thank you so much for coming on and for just being the the seed planter of this project. It's um, to be honest, it's one of the top five things that I'm proud of in my last 20 years of education. It's just been really a meaningful project for me. So I just want to say thank you for initiating it and for the wonderful partnership we've had. Thank this you, year. Roberta. And the partnership has been really amazing. You know, I've worked with different vendors before, but um, I haven't been able to engage in in the intellectual banter that you and I engage in. And um, (laughs) you just have a great spirit. You lift people up. You made me feel confident when I wasn't confident. There were times when I didn't think this project was ever going to get done and I was frustrated. And you also pushed our thinking uh, a lot. And, you know, the, the framework is what it is today because you made us go deeper I'm really grateful for that and your team, Faith and Sharice and Christina as well, and the feedback that you've given us along the way and all the editing and iterations that you made us do. So, um, and including my whole team too. I don't know if the audience knows this, but you were also doing professional development with the entire team, you know, as we went through the process of co-creating the framework and it just really deepened the team's ability to understand what we were doing and why we were doing it and the importance of it so that they can be, you know, some of the first educators to use it in Queens. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We think your voice matters. Send us your education questions, concerns, and promising practices, and we'll address them. Subscribe to the pod or leave a review, and definitely follow us on social, where you can find us at TCCPET. Send an email to cpet at tc.edu. And a big shout out to our post-production crew, Isaac Hodges, at Katie Milks, and G Faith Little. And a shout out to my absent co-host, Sharice, we love you. Uh, we'll see you back here soon, and we'll be back in your feed next time with another great episode. Until then, take care and talk soon. Thank you.